0: Welcome back, everybody, readers, and listeners of the Incidental Encyclical, to the accompanying podcast for our second issue. So, after navigating numerous difficulties for the past three months since this project began its journey up, we are bringing to you now this edition for the second quarter of 2023. And befitting the challenges of guiding and building a magazine community and following the pattern of countless journeys upward in myth, history, and literature. This endeavor in its second issue sets sails for troubled Seas. That is our theme. The creative pieces in the magazine coming out in a few weeks will reflect that theme. And the classics that we've chosen to discuss here in the podcast and in the magazine are all related to it. We have one ancient, we've got one medieval, and we've got one modern. Before we get into that, I'm Sam. You might have heard my voice on the first podcast or the bonus episode that came out a week or two ago. I I uh, have a Bachelor in Ancient History, and I've been in the classics, loving them and studying them for uh, about a decade or something. I don't Time slips by. But yeah, former was studying the classics for a little while now. I've loved sharing what excites me and what inspires me, what edifies me in the classics with others. And so this is what this project is built on. And joining me, we have a lot of people involved in this discussion today, two returning voices, can't say faces because most people aren't going to be able to see them. So we've got my friend Levi, who is part of the editorial team and runs
1: the translations column. Levi, it's good to have you back. Hello, it's good to be back. My name is Levi. I, the graduate of a Bachelor of Ancient History, and currently a uh, Master's of Research student in in Ancient Greek Linguistics and related topics. And like Sam, I spent I don't know yeah you know, the better part of a decade now engaged with the classics and doing my best to get a handle on them. Also, we've got Eddie back. Eddie was uh, in our discussion in the first
0: podcast. Eddie, it's great to have you here. We'll just note quickly that you referred to Levi as your friend, but not
2: me. <laughs> it,
0: it's right. implicit. It's we'll implicit. Sweep, everyone here is my past.
2: Friend. It. Um, um, yeah, I'm Eddie. I spent a few years studying classical liberal arts. I have a real passion for just the classics in general. And yeah, great to be here. I love discussing this stuff.
0: Epic. And joining for the first time on the podcast are two people who have been hard at work behind the scenes, doing a lot of stuff and helping this magazine and community get off the ground. Uh, We've got Mike. Mike, it's great to have you. G'day, g'day.
3: Thanks for having me. It's very exciting to be a part of this project. Similar to Eddie, I spent a couple of years delving into uh, literature, history, and philosophy, classical liberal arts. And um, yeah, I really have a passion for kind of delving into these themes and how they can apply to us today, because I really think there's some wisdom in these old works that really doesn't get communicated across uh, unless you really put a lot of time and effort into delving into it so i guess that's kind of part of the mission of this project is to yeah. outline how that can uh those themes that have kind of been lost uh over the last couple of years can be rediscovered and applied
0: today and mike does a lot of solid work for us uh mike has a job in marketing and has been doing heaps of work helping us get that aspect of the magazine off the ground. And finally, we've got Harry, who's also been helping in that respect in marketing. Harry owns his own business has been taking time out to help us shape this project and get off the ground. And he's also been taking time out to write for us. And Harry's been putting in some phenomenal pieces, which will be coming out in this upcoming issue in a couple of weeks. Harry, it's absolutely excellent to have you.
4: Yeah, it's great to be here. Thanks, Sam. Uh, yeah, my name's Harry and I'm uh yeah, I have a passion for the uh, classics and philosophy and i um, very happy to be this uh, publication's resident dilettante. Very happy. <laughs>
0: <laughs> it is great to have you. So I'll jump straight into the theme and Harry, you've written for us an essay which will be featured at the start of this issue to bring readers into the theme and unpack it for them. But I was hoping that here you'd be able to just give an overview of what you've presented and, and the way that you've tried to break down the idea of Troubled Seas and how it applies both to uh, works of literature and myth and stories in general, but also to the idea of the examined life and where Troubled Seas factors into that.
4: Yeah, so this piece, you know, it's really trying to tie together the common threads of, you know, all epics, of all great literature, which uh, confront kind of the human condition as it pertains to risk and danger and uncertainty. And uh, I've sort of used the device of mirrored analogy as we go through where there's kind of there's places where we examine physical risk we know we examine like the role of someone lost at sea but also how this pertains to someone who is engaged in the intellectual life and how that the examined life is really a type of troubled seas it's a type of seafaring adventure from there i've broken it down to a number of different components where you might find yourself on the travel then tying it back to the examined life in particular. And then from there, we have the, the types of places you could end up.
0: And so towards the end of it, as you mentioned, you go through these ways in which the seafaring voyage in both literature, but also in the life of a truth seeker or someone who loves uh, to look for meaning, the ways in which that journey could end. And you've broken it into these three aspects. Would you be able to break down what those are and what each might mean both in literature and in life?
4: Yeah, absolutely. So starting with the foreign shore, this is a topic that, um, you know, we're going to get into pretty soon, but it's this question of, uh, you know, to the Greeks is a question of hospitality, right? There's this question of, when you come to a foreign shore, there's a way you expect to be received and there's a way that you expect to kind of live your life there. You know, the sailor who ends up at a foreign port, you know, permanently or semi-permanently, whatever, is a stranger, is a stranger in a strange world. They're in a completely different culture, talking to people who have a completely different way of understanding things, a completely different way of life. And there's a point where, you know, you need to essentially come to terms with a life of integration. That's what I tried to, uh, to put across that sort of lifelong journey is a question of coming to terms with what you came to the foreign shore with and what you need to do to build a home there. And um, before I go any further, I I did want to say that there's a kind of a sense in which these are all final destinations, but there's also a sense in which these are stages. So so Mm. one maybe go from one stage to another, and it's not necessarily a, a final destination. I think we can all kind of see times when we've traveled from one to another in literature and in uh, in our own journeys
0: um jumping back in we now have first issue and first podcast we chat a little about Kierkegaard there's something similar yeah. that he does in his writings is that he presents the idea of aesthetic and ethical and religious ways of being and it's a, he has that similar concept in that these could be final destinations for the individual you can read in in myth certain characters who embody that as as their final destination as their mode of being and in life you'll meet individuals who do that but like you're saying with with these ways that you're breaking down the myth of the sea and the the troubled sea they can also be stages uh and uh, Kierkegaard is in many of his works not all of them but in many of his works he's fairly ambivalent about which is the greatest mode you know which should you take he's not answering that question for you and yeah I appreciate the way that you've broken these down uh, in such a way that there is that open-ended question as to will this be a stage or will it be a stop
4: absolutely i think we're going to get into this you know really soon which is the question of endings is that you know do we always get a satisfying ending at the end of these great works you know it's maybe satisfying without being conclusive i think is kind of Mm. a, a good way to put it as you say it's not always obvious when when there's kind of an end or if this is just the end of a segment of a cycle into into a transitionary period i guess moving on The second section, the second ending, or the second point, you know, a a seafarer may find themselves is that of the castaway. I've tried to point out here, this is the, this kind of characteristic of being in a lost, confused, hopeless sort of state. So you can imagine that a literal seafarer, they've just had their shipwrecked and they're hanging onto a piece of driftwood. It's not obvious to them that they're actually going to make it. It's not obvious to them that they're going to make it home. It's not obvious that they're going to make it to a foreign shore. It's not obvious they're going to be rescued. And I've kind of tried to put this in the modern mode of, of hopelessness, which we might call like a latent nihilism. Mm. And this kind of concept of being able, unable to ground anything, unable to tie something down. I have th- this image, which we'll uh, get onto later when we talk about the old man in the sea, which is the lashing down of things that are valuable. Mm. And th- this is impossible for the, for the man who's cast away. He, there's nothing to tie down. There's nothing to die down to it's just this void and i think we can really see that in a stormy sea being blown around as you're uh, just there trying to tread water Mm. i think Mm. that's kind that's kind of the image i'm trying to uh convey there
0: yeah it ties in really well because i think Anyone who who's been out on open waters, whether you're on a surfboard or swimming or on a boat, it's inevitable that you'll feel helpless at some point. That's just the nature of going out and and being in the sea. And great works of literature can do what you're you're sort of drawing out here, which is tie in that ex- physical experience to a emotional intellectual experience as well that you can have which as you say you know can can be expressed as sort of a latent nihilism which is responding to risk and encountering the dangerous aspects of the world Mm. isn't always gonna end or it won't always bring you straight away into uh, the heroic uh, conquest of a foreign shore the heroic uh, successful voyage It, it can often just bring you into a point where you have no moorings and you have no ground beneath your feet Mm. Uh, if I can add as well, I think a really
3: interesting part of this whole layout of the the circle of going into a new place, realizing you're in a new place, and then finding your new home, so to speak, that's not something that is exclusive to ancient literature either. This is no, a, yeah. this is a human phenomenon that us as humans have encountered, even in our modern lives. Especially like throughout history, I think these themes can be applied pretty much every aspect of our life everything we do every choice we make is a risk a weight of okay cost benefit every everything you do getting up in the morning is a risk and i think yeah. trying to view that in terms of okay how can i embrace this day and take everything out of this that i can and learn from it mm. is i think a really interesting theme uh throughout all of the literature that we'll be viewing but i think it's really well put in this piece of writing
0: Yeah. Yeah. Thanks, Mike. Yeah. No, I love the way that Harry sort of outlines that, yeah, these are outcomes in stories, but you have to know that these outcomes are there in your day-to-day life too. You know, like you said, get up out of bed. You have to know that there's a chance that today, if you're really striving for something, you will end up a castaway.
4: Well, th- this is really that main theme of the, you know, why does someone take to the seas? Why does someone set sail? And it's that the risks of the physical risks, the dangers of the sea, you know, are less than the risks of staying back home. And that's kind of really confusing because to the ancients, maybe someone else will speak on this after, but they had this different conception of, of death. Uh, the mortal risks aren't necessarily the worst things that can happen to you. You know, often mm. in the Iliad, especially they, they speak of fates that are worse than death. Mm. and this is something quite foreign to the to a modern understanding mm. there's uh there's kind of nothing worse than physical risk in, our, in 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 modern life and so it's you know when we talk about transitioning periods in life and everything that's something worth considering is you know how we consider risk is very different to how the ancients would have
0: that idea that the sea even though it presents the idea of physical destruction and great danger is preferable to the dangers at home and and the question of what are those dangers then and it, it can be at home you face that nihilism because there is no physical danger you face things becoming boring or rote or unvalued and there's there's a great Modern novel also to do with the troubled seas. Herman Melville's *Moby Dick*, which in the opening chapter, um, Ishmael pretty much says this explicitly. He he says whenever he starts feeling morose, whenever he feel, starts feeling like he just wants to step out in the street and in the front of the you know passing tram or something, he boards a ship as a as a sailor. He says, Cato falls upon his sword, the philosophical flourish. I quietly slip away to the docks and board a ship. He says, the sea is my
4: alternative to the musket and ball. Right. <laughs> Just this and idea th-
0: that, yeah, if I stayed at, at home, I'd kill myself.
4: <laughs> right. Well, I think this is the thing. It's that, you know, no matter how much we try to suppress that kind of notion, there are things that are worse than death. There's w- things that are worse than taking a risk than going out to sea. Yeah. And um, especially in the intellectual life, in the examined life, which I try to tie this back into. It's this question of, you know, there's very, there's a lot of comfortable truths we hold. There's a lot of very convenient propositions we might take, and uh, it takes, it takes courage. It's a, it's a great risk to confront those and to see if they really hold up. You know, even if you're right in the end, just to uh, test their mettle is. It's very difficult, and it's not something everyone is game to uh, embark on. Mm,
0: no, that's great. So we've got. The foreign shore is an outcome. We've got the castaway as an outcome. What's the third outcome of this journey out into risk and into troubled seas?
4: So I, you know, I see the last kind of stage of this as the return home, which you know, is, you know, is the key theme of the Odyssey and so on, which we're going to talk about later. But you know, it, it appears to me that for the most part, the return home is the preferable outcome. It's preferable that you've gone out and safely returned. But the risk entailed with returning home is that as you are not the same man who once left, you know, your home may not be the same home you left. Mm. So there's this kind of question as to have you actually already lost home from setting sail, And if you are to return, could home be another foreign shore? Is it really your home anymore? And I guess tying it back to the Odyssey in the final paragraphs of the essay, I'm trying to um basically... Uh, link this to Odysseus's kind of identity crisis in a sense, which is that he's used very tricky ways to get himself out of problems through disguises and so on. But when he needs to return home and when he needs to, you know, reveal himself to his wife, it's actually his identity, his fully revealed self that's actually required to complete the journey. There's a sense in which, you know, his journey at home would never be complete if he couldn't win the uh, recognition of his wife in the end. And so I think that's a very powerful kind of component is that identity is something that lies back at home with uh, relations with people.
0: So you've brought out really succinctly, but with a lot of depth, these outcomes of encountering troubled seas and going seafaring, both in terms of how it might apply to the examined life, but also in literature. Another
3: theme in terms of outlining these these three kind of outcomes is it does form a little bit of a circle. Yep. It's almost like the um, and I really like the way it's illustrated, Harry, because it is almost like the stages of stages of grief, so to speak. Mm-hmm. Like it's like denial at first. Wow. I can't believe I'm out of this you know, situation where I was comfortable acceptance. OK, I'm in this situation. Let's deal with it. And then kind of finally, you know, acknowledgement like, OK, I'm in this situation. I might as well kind of learn to adapt towards it. And I think how you've illustrated that, like the foreign shore representing kind of the fulfillment of desires in a new environment, and then castaway away symbolizing the state of kind of aimless detachment. And then finally, the return home, which is the reintegration after a journey really is kind of this, the how human growth is illustrated throughout history. Like that's how we become who we become and that's how society advances i think
0: mm.
4: and i was just gonna say that you know i think that's the interesting thing with the iliad and the odyssey together is that it's a cyclical kind of phenomenon where you know maybe we should talk to our, our resident greek scholars here but You know, I can imagine that at the time, you know, as this would have been recited around campfires and so on, you know, people would have thought of their fathers being the ones who went and sacked some town and then returned uh, in an odyssey like fashion and think of themselves as, you know, when they come of age, they will do the same thing and do a cycle themselves. And I'm wondering if that's this cyclical thinking is just so key to the classical understanding of life and its trials and so on
1: oh absolutely and just cyclical thinking in general defines so much of ancient mythology and ancient folklore and and you see it all over the place but yeah especially in the greek classical world and i mean and you see it not just in like cyclical journeys and the reinstantiation of patterns but you'll see it in like each like between two towns each town will like there's a there's a cycle of animosity and reconciliation between different places and it's the cyclical thinking is so key in that world for you absolutely
0: Well, let's get into the worldview of the Greeks a bit deeper, because as Harry's been outlining, as he's been summarizing these conclusions, the Odyssey does encapsulate both or really all three of these potential endings at certain moments of Odysseus's story. And I think the great thing is that each of the works that we're going to be talking about, the Odyssey is the first, uh, and then we'll go from there to talk about an Anglo-Saxon poem called The Seafarer. And we'll finally wrap up by talking about The Old Man and the Sea by Ernest Hemingway. But each of these three works does encapsulate strongly one or more of these different aspects. And so it's great because I think we'll get to really discuss uh, each of the possible outcomes of the journey into the sea as we go through each of these works. So Levi, uh, as you know, Harry mentioned, resident Greek scholar, uh, would you care to break us in, into the world of The Odyssey, the story and the meaning of the work?
1: Uh, absolutely. So The Odyssey, uh, written by... Uh, supposedly written by the poet Homer, same author as the famous Iliad, which tells the story of the Trojan War and Achilles. Whether there was ever one author of the Odyssey or the Iliad is highly suspect, but that is beyond the textual criticism of the Odyssey, is beyond the the context of this discussion, let's say. The Odyssey itself tells the story of Odysseus's return home, Odysseus, uh, the man who came up with the Trojan horse gambit, which finally put an end to the siege at Troy, tells the story of his 10-year journey home, faced with many trials and tribulations along the way, before returning home and finding his home in chaos. And this is very much sort of resembling that theme of the return home that uh, Harry was outlining earlier, that when Odysseus left for Troy, he left behind an infant son and and a, a healthy wife and a prosperous kingdom. And when he comes home, his house is overrun by, by suitors trying to take his place and a son who's grown up without a father and a wife who's being pressured to remarry. And it's very much embodying this idea of chaos at the return home. But the, what we've really tried to focus on in our written piece for this issue of the encyclical is actually Odysseus' encounter with the foreign land and especially themes of hospitality and being a guest and how guests are received in different contexts and i
0: think there's a reflection as as you're drawing out here which is very strong in the odyssey between the idea of a troubled sea being a symbol for a troubled hearth or a troubled home and and the story both in the aspect of his return home but also as you're mentioning his encounter in the foreign shores and this this ambiguity in in context that shouldn't be ambiguous in terms of how he's received the hospitality that's presented to him all of that is interesting as the two main symbols of the work man and the other identities that are circling him so man this in this case Odysseus, and then family hearth kingdom and all of that all of those symbols are coming into conflict with this the symbol of the sea which is the god poseidon and his sons his his servants the demigods of the sea the monsters of the sea the witches of the sea the storms the cliffs the islands all these symbols are kind of coming into contact and the the trouble in one bleeds into and 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 creates chaos in the other
1: oh absolutely i think there's kind of two points that i want to touch on so obviously like let's say the return home i think is perhaps it's the overarching theme of the odyssey it's it's definitely what's most obvious it's what stands out but the theme like I mentioned, the theme of hospitality, the theme of, of the foreign encounter is also so present in the narrative and it's contrasted and I think that's what makes it really interesting is that the way in which Odysseus is received in each different context is is slightly different or, or very different in fact in certain places. And I think this is most evident in the way in which Odysseus's contact with Polyphemus the Cyclops is, is contrasted with his encounter with the Phaeacians and his arrival upon their shores, because when Odysseus first arrives on the island of Polyphemus, in the land of the Cyclopes, he arrives as any guest would, he arrives in the home, he announces himself, he's sort of embodying, in part at least, the role of a guest, as, as he should be, he's, he's bringing rep-
0: gifts you know he's he's expecting that his reception will be appropriate because he arrives in cyclopsis at home but he's he's brought wine and cheese you know he's brought a couple of men with him he's kind of playing out, as you're mentioning this expected role as far
1: as exactly he, he's sort of he's sort of playing out this pattern and it's well it's very much not reciprocated by polyphemus who instead wants to eat his guests effectively <laughs>
0: Yeah, which is possibly the greatest breach of uh, of norms <laughs> that you can imagine.
1: Exactly, and it it sort of calls back. There was an earlier encounter with the uh, I think the Lestringian giants, who are also cannibalistic, but this is this is almost a more personal engagement with the same mm. uh, the same encounter, let's say, and this is contrasted very heavily with Odysseus' arrival on the island of the Phaeacians, who. They're described as having been former neighbors of the Cyclopes before having to move away, and there's also almost a, an implication of kinship, and they're they're near of the gods in the same way that the Cyclopes. Yeah, are.
0: that's something that the king um, Alcinous, I think, is the king of the Phaeacians, and yes. he tells Odysseus, uh, "We too, like the Cyclopes, are blessed of the gods." And yet, there's an ambiguity in insofar as they were neighbors. There's there's old great kings um of the Phaeacians who almost have this kind of giant-like status like the Cyclopses themselves. So it's a question of like has Odysseus wandered into another civilization of of these you know great beings who are, are... Absolutely mm.
1: Yeah and and maybe maybe in part the reason this is the reason for you know Odysseus's less typical entrance into the world of the Phaeacians because he's he's shipwrecked upon the ta- on the on the shores of the island and you know, the first encounter he has is actually uh himself being undressed, seeing a group of women washing clothes at a river in what would otherwise be a rather private setting. It's not exactly the normal first hospitable contact.
0: And one of the women may happen to be the uh heir apparent, the princess. <laughs> so, uh yeah, there's a, there's a huge amount of impropriety and awkwardness, you know, that's going on immediately. Exactly. Yeah.
1: It's like... If if the king were to you know come upon this situation, he would be he would be well within his rights just to like execute Odysseus on the spot. Let's say for violating these norms, mm. and Odysseus doesn't help his case in that after this, you know he he sneaks into the town in disguise and refuses to give his name, and eventually you know he circumvents the male authority of the king Alcinous and falls at the knees of his wife, and it's like all of this is very much a breach of normal patterns of hospitality, and Yes, the Phaeacians are the perfect hosts. They welcome him. They they show this great spirit of, of Xenia, of guest friendship, you know, which was so important to the ancient Greek world. And eventually they are what bring him home. They give him a ship and they send him on his way. And that's how he finally returns home. And it's this contrast of you know Odysseus playing the role of the perfect guest and being that being violated by Polyphemus. So Odysseus sort of taking on this encapsulating his role of trickster of of terrible and clever you know sneaking into the city violating all these norms of propriety and still being accepted it's sort of two extremes
0: yeah and the extremes are like they're compounded in even like bigger ways because Odysseus walks in you know fairly brazenly and honestly into Polyphemus's cave and then has to then use trickery and trickery alone to uh, escape whereas the opposite occurs in the in the case of the his ride with the Phaecians, because he, he kind of arrives in more of the trickster guise, as you mentioned but his ticket out is actually to disclose himself to reveal his name and to become honest and explain his story and his circumstance and it's in that situation that they provide him with a ship to sail home on
1: yes yes absolutely and uh, I just want to take this opportunity here as well, because we 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 explore this t- theme of hospitality like even further in in the in the written essay of of this issue. And it's really kind of what we're trying to draw out. Um, but now that we have this opportunity here on the podcast, I also just want to like briefly touch on the theme of the castaway uh, that Odysseus also embodies at times, because Odysseus is a sailor. He sets off from Troy on his journey home with with a crew of brave men with him. And, you know, he ends up shipwrecked multiple times and eventually, well, comes home alone, destitute Mm. and, you know, no wealthier off and that he's very much is is stripped down continually and uh, especially in in book five uh, of the Odyssey. He sets off from from the island of Ajijia, sets off from his stay with Calypso and He's on his way to the Phaeacian islands, and uh, Poseidon, the god of the sea, um, very much the the embodiment of the sea itself, the the most sort of primal force of the sea, kind of catches him out of the corner of his eye and says, "No, that's not happening." And and sends down this storm. And and the the book five it very much has this. It's it's short but powerful. Odysseus is beat down. it's like I think it's for, described for two days and two nights. He's he's just on a single plank of wood and eventually he he strips off his clothes and takes a sea nymph blesses him with a cloak which protects him mm. or, or her, her or her shawl I her think girdle, yeah. but in yeah in the process though he's he's had to strip off all his
0: clothes yeah and... I was hoping to bring this up because I'm I'm hearing you talk about that storm in the castway, and I'm like this is I'm hope you're going that direction and yeah because yeah. there's this moment as he's on the ship and he's he's been clinging on for ages and and the senior comes up and says odysseus you need to abandon the the wreck of your craft and take my girdle and I'll, this will protect you as you come to the coast and he he refuses but like for like a very long time to to actually take her advice um after she's given him the girdle and he just keeps clinging to this this wreck and eventually you know you had that moment described where he just strips everything off and he leaves it. he jumps off and then just Completely naked apart from this sea nymph's shawl or veil, leaps into the sea. And it's such a powerful moment of the castaway having nothing. Not just that they have nothing to hold on to, that they have to abandon. They have to push things away. They have to strip down to just nothing in order to survive total destruction. Absolutely. Which I think is a theme we see play out as well in the second piece we're going to be talking about um which is the seafarer uh, an anglo-saxon poem of anonymous authorship as so many anglo-saxon poems are and it's a poem it's in the form of a lament and often if you get books of um you know anglo-saxon poetry or, or like i've got here the penguin classics earliest english poems that's the section you'll find it in is lament poetry or um stuff like that and it's very much a extended meditation on the idea of being a castaway and the idea of stripping away in order to survive so as it's an anglo-saxon poem it's written in the style that was prevalent in the day which is alliterative verse Uh, and i'll read the opening lines just to set the scene of the poem the tale i frame shall be found to tally the history is of myself sitting day long at an oar's end clenched against clinging sorrow. Breast drought have I borne, and bitterness too. I have coursed my keel through care halls without end. Over furled foam, I forward in the bows, through the narrowing night, numb, watching for the cliffs we beat along. And he goes on. The poem continues. He talks about the cold that besets him. He talks about his isolation, the storms that are surrounding him, and that the only sounds around him, he's no longer surrounded by the laughter of his fellow men, the sound of drinking and carousing. It's the sound of solitary birds, birds who are just as frail as him in the in the face of the storm and how every instance of life around him is also marked by a sort of nakedness in the face of nature and, and isolation. He goes on, he describes the culture of the time. Anglo-Saxon culture was based off lords who would, give out gifts and gold to their vassals in exchange for loyalty, fealty, and service. And it would create these stable systems in an otherwise chaotic period in, in this northwestern part of, of Europe, uh, in which there could be small holdings, halls built around a single lord and the men who surround him and provide him service in exchange for him his giving of gold, his gift giving. And he's lamenting in this poem that that is passed from the world, that no longer, wherever he looks, can he see that this cultural stability has collapsed from the world. There are no Jarls anymore to perform this basic function to keep society afloat. As it goes on, it says, days are soon over on earth imperium with the earl's hand fails. Kings are not now. Kaisers are not. There are no gold givers like the gone masters who, between them, framed the first deeds in the world, in their lives, lordly, in the lays, renowned. That chivalry has changed. Cheer is gone away. It is a weaker kind who wields earth now. And in this, he's seeing, in the same way that, you know, Harry's been talking about the symbol of the sea can help us understand uh the moments of breakdown in the examined life or as mike's been talking about the way that we can apply it culturally to a situation we find ourselves in the poem is doing just this thing of taking this this world that's falling into chaos through the collapse of cultural norms and it's putting it in the context of a man alone at sea naked before the the wrath of nature but as this stripping down continues to the limit To the point of despair, there's this strange turnaround that happens. Just like the nymph giving divine assistance, a sliver of divine hope to Odysseus when he's in this moment of great danger as a castaway. The seafarer in the poem has this reflection towards the end. He's talking about how, you know, the end of the day, one of three things will catch up with you: illness, age, or vengeance. You'll be laid low. And that you can bury a man with as much gold as you want, but you cannot allay the anger of God towards a soul laden with sin. And then he, he turns from the poetry into this last little section in prose, which is a meditation on how the power of God is even more terrible and awesome than the power of the sea or the earth or any Lord and his ability to give gold and, and fight wars. And within this, there's a sense that in a world in which no relationship with a fellow man can be trustworthy, can be held in the way it used to be, and in a world in which nature is, is so powerful and destructive that there's no hope of holding a right relationship with it either. And that's why the C here is the image used. There is a force more terrifying and powerful than both of those, which it is possible, despite how awesome and frightening it is. It is possible to hold a relationship with God. And this is how the seafarer is resolving a poem, which is a very short piece by comparison to something like the Odyssey. But over the course of these 124 lines is peeling away the identity of man in this culture at the time, you know, eighth or ninth century Anglo-Saxon culture peeling away his relationship with the natural world and seeing how it can all come apart and really exposing what is at the heart of he himself and the world he lives in. So it's a, it's a beautiful
3: poem. Absolutely. And I think the themes of the poem, which you've outlined really resonate with everything that we're trying to bring across in the key themes for this main issue. And I think there's a lot to think about just in application to our daily life as you said there's there's so much wisdom in this uh in this old literature and there's so much that can be brought out from it and applied like even in terms of how out at sea cast away he strips back everything from the old society and and um and kind of finding yourself in that situation and okay how do you deal with that as a human um unfortunately we are rational beings and we need to think about stuff and <laughs> would that it were not so <laughs> i know and and how does that process work for, for different situations? And I think that really a big part of this is growth. I think the acceptance of a new situation, uh, the acceptance of risk in your life and learning how to deal with that is how every single person in history becomes a better human.
2: Mm.
0: Yeah. Solitude at sea is pretty strongly present in all of these works and the idea that in you know out here by yourself at sea you have the, an opportunity to compare and and understand more deeply the relationships you do hold uh is there in the Odyssey it's there strongly in the seafair but it's perhaps there in the most personal and in some ways the most touching way in the final work that we are looking at uh, in this issue and in this uh, installment sort of the podcast, which is Ernest Hemingway's Nobel Prize winning novella, The Old Man and the Sea. Eddie, you've been spending some time meditating on this piece and reading through it. Do you want to break us down a little bit of, about what this, this uh, story contains?
2: Uh, absolutely.
0: So it is, a, for those who don't know, it's a 1951,
2: as Sam said, it's a novella uh, by Ernest Hemingway and it follows a protagonist of The Old Man, a Fisherman, by the name of Santiago, Um, And he is cursed with bad luck. Um, I don't know how to say the Spanish word or whatever it was that was used. Salau, maybe? Salau, is that how you say I'm not sure. But that's what the other fishermen say he is or he's cursed with bad luck. And so he he goes out further than any other fisherman to sea so that he can essentially get a greater achievement than any other. Just touching on what you were saying before about solitude and isolation, I did note when I was reading this that there is a... As interesting as it as difficult as that is, and as much of a detriment as that is to his situation while he's out at sea battling with an absolutely enormous fish. It's ironic in that the isolation, while detrimental, is also his his greatest achievement will depend upon his isolation.
0: Yeah, that's a fascinating a fascinating thought. I mean, I don't I don't know if I, I really have. Thought about that deeply so i might have to take a minute and let him... <laughs> <laughs> keep bringing that out because that's that's such a, a brilliant brilliant uh, insight
2: well yeah i was thinking about it um i think you know just to outline it the isolation is his entire his greatest achievement which is catching this fish and sort of proving himself as a, his proving his skill as a fisherman is in large part entirely dependent on his isolation even though he laments about his isolation and solitude essentially the whole time he's out at sea. Um, because the, the a boy by the name of Madeline, who he usually fishes with, the boy was banned from fishing with the old man because the old man had bad luck. 80, 84 days,
0: I think, at the southern. Of 84 it, days fish, at the yeah. southern,
2: yeah, without a fish. And the boy used to fish with him before that. And the boy and this old man have a something akin to a sort of
0: father-son relationship in a lot of ways. Um, yeah, Santiago taught the boy to fish. And yeah. it's it's an interesting relationship. I think there's echoes of the Odyssey and the kind of Telemachus and, and Odysseus mm. relationship there. Um insofar as there's this there's these hospitality rituals that play out at the start and the end of the book with how the boy cares for the old man in his isolation and how there's sort of a a limit to how far he can care for him. You know, so the old man early in the book the boy you know helps him pack up his boat go home and when he's at home the boy says oh do you want me to go get you something to eat and the man says no 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 i, I have, i'll make the fire soon i've got some some beans and rice to eat and they both know and they both know that's a lie but yeah. the boy is not going to press the issue because there's a certain mm. limit to which he has to respect the loneliness the isolation of the old man who he cares for and is is trying to to care for but it has to stop at a certain limit
2: yeah oh absolutely there's a it's it's broken in that fashion, in that the 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 old man seems to, he has moments in the book, like when he's out destitute at sea and he says things like, I wish the boy was here. He repeats that line probably about 10 times Yeah, um, over the course yeah. of, you know, some pages where he just, and then, but he, the way Ernest Hemingway writes it is so succinct and weird. He says, you know, the old man says out loud, puts an emphasis on him speaking out loud to himself out in the middle of absolutely nowhere. And he says, I wish the boy was here, but he's not the boy is not here. Like he just kind of yeah. repeats the same thing over, but outlines it to himself. Almost like it's explain it to me. Like I'm four years old kind of, mm. but he's doing it to himself. And I think that speaks a bit to the, the barrier in place between his friendship with the boy mm. in a lot of ways. It's sort of indicative of the way, like, you know, he says he does, he never wants to bother the boy, you know, with the boy offering him food and things like that. And the old man is always, he lies and they both know he lies, but, that's the way it plays out and neither of them really contests it and in the same fashion he's saying I wish the boy was here but the boy is not yeah it's just a very very strange way of outlining their relationship I think yeah
0: and the talking aloud becomes part of what makes the book mesmerizing like it's it's short it's maybe it's three chapters I'm not sure 100 pages probably in most print editions um Mm. You know, three hours if you're listening to the audible version. Yeah. Like it's 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 a breeze, you know, in some mm. ways. But it's a it is a tragic and melancholy story. So it's not a breeze in the sense of oh, I was just going to lazily flick through these pages. You know, it's something that you mm. do want to pay attention to. And it but it has a mesmerizing quality as you're bringing up because there's the distinction that Hemingway makes between when the man thinks and when he speaks.
2: Yes, yeah, I have to say it made for a very fascinating listening while I was on a plane above the ocean, and I was just like looking down <laughs> at it. <laughs> Thing and I wonder if there's any absolutely massive marlin fish in there. <laughs> um uh, yeah, and something else about the old man in the sea is it was touched on earlier to do with the Odyssey in particular, is the um the journey home. Yeah. Um, so in the journey home or the, the section outlining the journey home in the old man in the sea. So he after three days of absolute struggle and hardship, he does in fact catch this enormous marlin. He's triumphant, he wants to take it home and attaches it to the side of his boat and he sets sail home. And then, as he is traveling home, sharks keep on coming, and he tries to fight them off, but they eventually eat eat the fish, yeah, essentially, yeah. and leave its carcass on the side. And that journey home is when he gets back, and he sort of he's so tired, he essentially just passes out. And the boy is upset about his state, and he cries. But there's all of a talk about the town, mm. where you know he doesn't have the actual physical fish and its meat. Um, or the meat on the fish to prove but he does everyone's walking past his boat and seeing the massive carcass on the side of his boat and saying things along the lines of um, never seen a marlin of that size yeah or did not really catch that so he, he really did have to prove his skill as a fisherman and so while he kind of his greatest achievement was essentially eaten by ch- eaten by sharks he did prove himself
0: yeah there's it's such a poignant ending because we know the man is broke you know he can barely afford to eat he sleeps on newspapers there's powerful images of destitution that accompany the loneliness and and so as he's bringing this fish in you know when he finally succeeds in his three-day struggle and and pulls it up out of the water and kills it there's this he's meditating he's excited by the fact that this will bring him lots of money he'll be able to buy back his net there is the knowledge that he has something of great value here but what he is counting on in terms of the value is as you're saying stripped away as he mm. gets closer and closer to the shore, the sharks keep coming. And this is such yeah. a, such a you know, sad moment of the book where he kills the biggest shark with a harpoon, but the harpoon's gone. He ties yeah. a knife to an oar, the knife goes. Yes. He breaks an oar in half and he's just stabbing them with a bit of broken wood until that's gone. And then mm. he's got nothing left. It's, it's um, a story in which everything is taken away from this man. It's interesting
2: bit. too, in that he, it is slowly built up. I think when, when, he's, when he first hooks the fish, he hasn't seen it, but he knows it's absolutely massive just due to its weight. And he's very, very careful about catching it. And I remember there's a scene when, when he finally starts to bear down on the fish and it starts to get tired and he realizes it's starting to get tired. It comes close to the surface and mm. it jumps out of the water and he sees it. And he, so he sees the fish a few times before he catches it. And in a way, I thought those were very similar to like uh, visions of grandeur. And mm. he sort of built it up slowly, got his prize. And then on the way home, it was stripped away slowly as well. Yeah, And it yeah. was sort of, it's, a, it's a quite a nice arc in a lot very, of ways. Yeah,
0: very perfect story. Like it's one of those stories that you read and you, you don't know what you would add to something like that. I think in modern and modernist novels, you know, there are plenty that are, are just fine. You know what I mean? But there are some, like, I think, you know, Portrait of the Artist is another one by James Joyce and, and Old Man of Seas and they're very short and they just tell such a succinct and perfect arc of a story that you you come to the end and you don't really know what more you could have asked from the author. Mm. And that also speaks a little
2: bit to the, um, at the start of the podcast, we were, uh, some of you were talking about how you're not really sure if the ending is happy Mm. sad and the old man in the sea is interesting in that it's really it's a bit of both because he Mm. he did prove his skill and everything as a fisherman and he essentially the whole point of the book is that he's kind of has all this in a way like secret knowledge of the ocean and he's special Mm. in some way and that's actually pointed out a lot and that he's old i think Mm. is what is an interesting part of that but then he also did lose his whole prize so in a way, I felt a bit conflicted about the ending because I was very happy that he'd sort of caught his fish and proven himself, but he didn't really get to reap the benefits other than... No, the, yeah, he's the metaphysical... still poor. Yeah,
0: he's still poor. <laughs> yeah. He's still probably going to die more or less alone. I mean, yeah. But, but at the same time, he's now a legend. You know, he's officially, yeah. like, he, he's in his old age. He's proved that the young man who was, you know, once the strongest sailor in, you know, Cuba, mm-hmm. uh, that that he's still made of the same metal and grit. Um, and it's, it's interesting the you know we've been bringing up the relationships and it's it's such a fascinating work insofar as like loneliness is such a key theme and perseverance is such a key theme but the whole time he's out at sea as he talks to himself as he thinks there's not a single page of the book which isn't bringing out one of his relationships to some character or aspect of the sea it's either his like you as you brought up his longing for the boy to be with him or in absence of that, he speaks to the fish, or to the birds yeah. around him, or to his own body, his hand. Mm. In a lot um, of ways, his most intimate relationship is with the fish. <laughs> it is, yeah. I think there's a there's a beautiful moment where he's he's caught himself a little uh, little fish to eat, and uh, and he's he's you know got the line braced against his back, and he's using one hand to like gradually you know cut mm-hmm. it into strips so he can he can eat it and sustain himself. And he's talking to the fish and he says, I wish I could feed you something, you know. Yeah. But he says, but I can't, you know, I'm going to kill you. Yeah, he uh, certainly cares for it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's such a, it's a, it's a poignant relationship because he kind of knows that this is his match. Like he's met his match and one mm. of them will die in this struggle. Mm. Uh, and, but at the same time, he doesn't, he doesn't desire the death of the fish simply for his own, like his own glory and his own no. sake, you know what I mean? It's just a necessary... It's, he's at sea this is a necessary part of mm. why he is here it's not that he rejoices in destroying the beauty of this fish there's, a, there's mm. a bit where he's reflecting on what happens when you kill a big marlin and how all the purple and green color on the scales just fades to a yeah. lead and dull gray mm. and there's a tragedy in the, that no one but the fisherman ever gets to see how beautiful this thing is because as soon as they, it's dead mm. the fact the color fades away yeah no, absolutely. It's a very, I'm going to say intimate
2: again, because it is, mm. it's very mm. intimate, actually. I remember yeah. reading about him, and him just discussing, he would sometimes talk to the fish as well. Yeah. Um, or he would, he would just have reflections on the fish and how great it is and mm. what a noble, he used the word noble a lot. Yeah. A very noble creature. Um, <clears throat> and yeah, speaking again to that, no one gets to understand or have a relationship with the fish like a fisherman yeah um which is ironic because they're also the one hunting them but yes yeah the special relationship goes with hunting i don't know it's like some um it's like some slow burning gladiator match (laughs) it is
0: it is (laughs) where the opponents like each other (laughs) (laughs) um and i think that's again like going back to the 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 way that hemingway uses the man's talking to himself and thinking uh as two different ways to draw the reader in, you know, there's a part where he has a hand cramp and he starts cursing his left hand and saying, you're useless. And then reprimands himself. He's like, why am I talking to my hand? It does no good. You know, the hand, hand's not going to talk back to me. And that's something that recurs all throughout the book. He sees a bird. He says, Oh bird, you know, you better be careful. There's a, there'll be a seahawk coming for you, but mm-hmm. oh, the bird won't understand. And why am I talking to the bird? And it's, it's this way of drawing a, the reader in mm-hmm. and, and creating these moments of intimacy in the, in absolute loneliness. Mm. Utterly absolute loneliness. You still experience several relationships that the old man has. You, you have his longing for the boy, and you understand his relationship with the boy deeper. You hear about his dreams and his past, and understand his relationships with the town and his life as a sailor better. Mm. And then his relationship with nature, how he sees himself in the role of a fisherman. He talks about this and thinks about this and then he thinks why am I talking about this should I be talking about this am I going mm. insane <laughs> you know yeah and, and uh, you... speaking sorry you go on oh say like as you said before intimate is just the word for for much of this book yeah because of how this dynamic plays out between talking and thinking about the way he's on interacting with the sea
2: mm. yeah and i um, just going back to the speaking to himself out loud and then he spends a large amount of time chastising himself for doing things which are sort of it's almost like he steps out of frame and goes, what are you doing? You're a crazy person. Mm. Um, but then he also continuously throughout the, throughout the novella um, indulges in activities, which would sort of egg on that. Those, those more insane moments of himself yeah. where he's talking to himself. Like, you know, as you were referring to before, like the small fish, he wants to sort of feed something to the fish before he feeds something to himself. Mm. Cause he, he finds himself having to indulge or persevere or indulge in the things which give him perseverance so that he has it. Yes. Yeah. Which is a fascinating thing because it's, it's, it doesn't make much sense. And I think we were discussing at some point that he, um, um, I've lost it. Sorry. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, (laughs) Went too deep underwater. (laughs) Something like that. Yeah. No pun intended.
4: (laughs) I wanted to jump in there about, yeah, please. It's, uh, these, this war against nature. And I, it reminds me of Hemingway's, um, you know, other references to the bullfights and running with the bulls and so on. Yeah. As a very a huge... similar element. And, you know, of course, yeah. Hemingway was the big game hunter and a deep sea fisherman himself. You know, is it the case that he is now embarking on these? You know, is he really the character in all of these books? You know, is he placing himself in that? And then in real life, is he trying to perform these same actions? You I know, think...
0: Go for it. Oh, sorry, no, no, I'll let you keep going. There. Oh no,
4: because there was these other points I wanted to um, touch on regarding the style. Because in the previous, um, in the previous encyclical, we talked about, or you guys talked about Xenophon, and made reference to um, his style as soldiers' prose. Mm. Uh, this very the, the terse kind of, you know, no extra words needed. You know, no superfluous kind of content. And I'm wondering if this, you know, Hemingway being the soldier, being the correspondent, now being, you know, the adventurer, is, is, is this a war story? And, um, you know, it seems to me that fate plays a major component in this as well. You know, there's, it's not certain how long the fight with the fish is going to go on for, you know, would he have survived a fourth day of the fight or a fifth day? Um, you know, how far, you know, he had to go so much further out, you know, he's tempting fate. Um, mm. There's yeah. all these elements being overwhelmed by a superior force in the, uh with the sharks, you know, there's a point where, you know, he's losing control over the situation. He loses the harpoon. Then he loses the, uh his makeshift harpoon. Then he, then, you know, he's just throwing everything he has at it. And then there's yeah. just a point where there's nothing can be done. It's, mm. it's his power has been taken away from it.
3: That's really, really interesting to point out the kind of breakdown as you were saying, because I think that also really resonates with the seafarer again. Like if we, If we look at the battle, as you said, Harry, there's like a a battle, a breakdown of all the other elements. Um, We can see that in the seafarer as well in terms of uh, he's kind of shaking all the shackles of society and becoming one with the ocean. We can also see that in the old man in the sea, he's kind of uh, shedding all of that baggage, quote unquote, to, I guess, learn uh, and become better as a person but really like the theme overarching the overarching theme with all the kind of literature so far is there's definitely like a risk a journey to the risk like there's a really clear outline of you have to strip away all of the other stuff to go forwards to go on
4: and i'm i'm curious to you know what your thoughts are you know to everyone else you know was the proposition in the beginning true is he just really unlucky because he went out too far you know or he he supposed he may have gone out too far and in the end you know he didn't really get what was the goal you know so even though there was a triumph in one sense there's kind of this um there's another side of the coin where it kind of it seems to have rung true that he was a really unlucky man you know he didn't bring back the fish he didn't he didn't bring back the economic benefit he was so excited about but there's something else right
0: yeah, the the question of is is the legend sufficient can the man be sustained upon the legend when he's destitute and hasn't brought in the money he hoped and in a sense maybe the story is is saying yes because as Eddie Eddie was bringing out like he has to engage in absurdity to persevere he has to have all these funny little moments and rituals and dialogues with himself he has to he has to try and he, he wants to feed the fish he wants to he wants to make it comfortable you know he doesn't he doesn't really want to kill it and he has to go through all of this to kind of in a sense justify the struggle he's going through to bring him resolve to finish the battle is to make the fish a worthy opponent and to and to want it to survive and to win as much as he wants to win in order to see this as uh, as see, yeah see this as a worthwhile struggle and it's in these moments it's like well He's eating, you know, every now and again, and he's materially strengthening himself. But what seems to really be carrying him through is, is legends is, Mm. is his own legend and the legend he wants to fulfill in, in doing this. And, you know, in that, in that sense, you know, is, is it sufficient that he's just brought back the carcass?
4: Well, that that's a very Greek element it feels like where you know in a similar way to uh after slaying a hero you ta- you take the armor you know the armor the armor of mm. Achilles or the armor of you know some other person that's proof that you are you triumphed over an enemy in the same way there's as long as we have the skeleton as long as that made it home there was proof that you know that was me and I did that yeah yeah and it's it's um which it, it ties into this this kind of Classic notion of honor, which is is different to like the Western uh, medieval, you know, chivalric kind of sense. It's it's something to do with there being something material left behind that sort of has the honor incarnate in it somehow. You know, the skeleton has the uh, the honor of catching that fish left in it still, and as long as yeah. we have the skeleton, you know, we have that. As long as we had Achilles' armor, there was proof that we'd slain him or whatever.
0: Yeah, and there's um, well, I think all of these works have. <laughs> they're all almost in a similar honor culture Um, right like as you brought up hemingway you know soldier war correspondent big game hunter participates in the running of the bulls deep sea fisherman you know uh created his like literally forged his own legends uh of, of masculinity which sometimes he was trapped in and sometimes you know he was more a servant of it than it was a servant of him but nonetheless you know is trying to rebuild the identity of, of the man in, in the way that Odysseus, uh, I mean, we, we we bring this up in the essay, and Levi and I had this discussion of, about how Homer's, both of his works, open with a word that tells you exactly what the story is about. In the Iliad, the first word of the of the poem is wrath. And then the in the Odyssey, the first word is the man, and that's Odysseus. He's the man. And, and, and um, in all of these works, I think we're looking at a culture in which yeah there there is a question of of honor present, and there is a question of um like these are these are like as you said, this is not chivalry. Anglo-Saxon peoples like they did not participate in chivalric culture until the Norman conquest, you know forced it upon uh, England via genocide and well, it's uh,
4: it's very different, right? and it's hard to yeah. it's almost hard for us to comprehend being you know kind of in in the culture we've we've grown up in. Um, but I wonder, you know, we were speaking about this before. This dialectic that was playing out between Achilles and Odysseus, as mm. the there's the trick, there's the trickster, there's the, inte- the I, you know, you could maybe say this is the Greek ideal in Odysseus, in that he's physically strong, which seems to be essential. You know, in in the Iliad, I can't think of anyone who's spoke of any of the men spoken of as physically weak, you know, so that's yes. an essential. So anyone who's on campaign it's guaranteed to be guaranteed to be someone, you know, he's a big dude, you know, he's ready. He can, uh, he can handle himself. Yeah. Then there's this dialectic between those who are clever and those who are, you know, brute force. Those are those are pure, um, pure might over, you know, the tempering of intelligence. You know, it's Odysseus who comes up with the Trojan horse. It's Odysseus who comes with the trick to get out of the uh, the Cyclops, which is, you know, such a key point. Yes. Yeah. And and so Hemingway is the old man Santiago. You know, this is a man of endurance. He's, he's like a mountain climber. And even after summiting the mountain, you know, there's still the return back. You know, the, the journey's not over after you've come to the top.
0: Well, this has been absolutely phenomenal. And I think what you just said there is a good tease because um, this project isn't over. We're coming up now to the release of our second issue. And we hope this podcast is getting everyone amped and excited for all the content therein. And we hope you've enjoyed the discussion here as well. I mean, I think it's personally, it's been fantastic. Um, but as you're saying, you know, you summit the mountain and the journey is not over. That's where why we've chosen to go with this theme after, you know, issue one, the journey up. Troubled Seas is in in many ways the natural, the symbolic, the mythological sequel. And and from there, you know, we've got a whole range of themes to explore uh, for, uh, throughout the rest of this year and hopefully the start of next year as, you know, but yeah, I mean, I'd like to thank all of you guys and all of our listeners. Um, this has been wonderful. Uh, does anyone have any like final thoughts? I mean, we've, we've we've covered so much, and we've really, I think, brought out a lot of these elements in the in the theme. So, does anyone have any any closing comments? I'll pass over to whoever wants to grab the floor. Just some really interesting stuff put out uh, all together, and I really
3: think it's it's key to keep in mind how everything we've said can apply to today. This isn't old stuff. Like the the literature itself could be considered old, but the ideas, they are applicable in every aspect of our life. Every day, again, we are making decisions. We are encountering risk. Getting up, everything we do is a mountain to summit, so to speak. And I think um, at the end of the day, if we reference the essay again, like there's the distinction between you know adventurers and wanderers. Will we be driven by a will to experience rather than reject ourselves, so to speak? I think that's a important point to highlight at the end of this.
0: Yeah, no, fantastic. I mean, we didn't even get into um, Harry's adventure and wanderer distinction. It's definitely a, a, a topic we Not could true. have <laughs> drawn, drawn so much into, and it's it's a tease. You've done it well. Like people are gonna have to come and read that essay now and uh, get keen to explore that idea that Harry brings out there too.
4: You'll have uh, to subscribe now.
0: If yeah, you want to figure it out. <laughs> subscribe and and, and <laughs> on our on our Substack, Incidental Cyclical Substack or um, yeah, follow the links that I'm sure will be accompanying this. Uh, Levi, Eddie, do you guys have any any final thoughts as we wrap up? No,
1: just <laughs> I think it's uh, this has been an excellent uh, discussion around all these themes, and yeah, I'm really looking forward to uh, moving forwards into the next issue, and um, which will highlight again three classic works and mm. host uh, a number of creative pieces. Yeah, stay tuned. We're not going to really we're not going
0: to reveal the theme for that yet, but um yeah, stay tuned. It is in the works as we speak. But yeah, thanks everyone. Again, I'm Sam. I have thoroughly enjoyed this project so far, and I hope with your support as listeners and with the fantastic support of all you guys here with me now on the, you know, contributors and editorial side of things, we can keep doing this for a long time to come because this is just thoroughly edifying so yeah i'm sam and thank you very much for listening and thank you to you guys for being here no worries mate
1: do you guys want to do a sign up <laughs> adios
0: thank like, you everyone bye well i don't know i was gonna say with, with, with the names, no, or with something, names i don't know yeah yeah, yeah, just, yeah, just yeah. To... i'm michael robinson
4: <laughs> here's to more big fish
3: here's to more big fish the journey up the troubled seas
4: Onwards and upwards.
3: Onwards and upwards.
4: (laughs) Onwards and upwards.
3: Eddie, you worked in a news place. You can do like a news site. Yeah,
0: give us this round out
2: round out it's 11 46 a.m here on the incidental encyclical podcast we have discussed a range of topics not limited to but including the odyssey the seafarer and the old man in the sea we hope you've thoroughly enjoyed this podcast until next time good afternoon